anyway, I'm not really a, a, a five-week Christmas thing person. So we're going to get into this this morning. It's really not Christmas, so be prepared. So over the last week, I saw a few headlines um, that were unsettling for me. So we're going to talk about those headlines because I want to address it. So a few headlines. This is uh, one is this study, a study found that Christians accounted for about 90% of the population 50 years ago. Christians accounted for about 90% of the population 50 years ago. But as of 2020, so 1970 to 2020, that figure has slumped to about 64. Huh. If 90% of the population was Christian, and we were witnessing and we were testifying and we were doing all the things that we normally are supposed to do, how did we lose 26%? Okay. This next one was a little bit of a study. As attendance dips, churches change to stay relevant for a new wave of worshipers. Churches change to stay relevant for a new wave of worshipers. There is so much wrong in that headline, I, I, I can't even unpack it all. So what is the main reason for the drop? The main reason, and I'm, I'm, I'm citing straight from a, a Pew Research, NPR, and Christianity Today. So this is their, this is their source. This is them. That's not me. I'm, quote, I'm reading from them, okay? The main reason is switching. Christians deciding that they are not Christians anymore. This mostly happens to people between the ages of 15 and 29. Happened when I was growing up, too. Happened to me. Uh, you know, mom and dad forced it down on me, and I'm not. Well, guess what? Switching. It's not switching. It's called coming of age and being dumb. The, this mostly happens to people between the ages of 15 and 29, according to the report, with an additional 7% of Christians disaffiliating from the, from the faith after the age of 30. Switching out has been happening steadily, which didn't used to happen, and I'm telling you now, it did used to happen. It used to be that if you met someone on the street and their father and mother were Christian, then they were Christian too. I don't know who these people were, but no. That's not always true anymore. For about a third of the people, that's not true anymore. What's not That, that father and mother are Christian and the children are Christian too, and anymore, that's not true. It was the same then. We all had to find our own way. We all got out from underneath mom and dad, thought we knew better, and came right back, didn't we? Unless mom and dad weren't living the Christian testimony they were preaching in church. And as children, we saw that testimony wasn't true. So when we got out from under it, we were true to what we saw in the home, not what we heard in the church. Food for thought. I wonder why we are losing the home. Because that's what this amounts to. If mom and dad are Christian and the kids are not, we are losing the home. And why? Could it be because, could it be because we no longer believe and live a testimony in our homes in front of our kids or in front of the neighbors? Because the kids and the neighbor kids are going to talk. 
If your testimony is not the same as it is when you walk in their church doors, when you walk in the front door of your house, they're going to notice. But these are just some headlines current and new from Pew Research, NPR, and Christianity Today. Everybody, everybody is signaling the end of Christianity, Christianity in America today from 90% to 64%. Fascinating. Now, I want you to remember that none of these, NPR, Pew, or Christianity Today magazine, are really Christian news reporters. They are biased. They're presenting a, an image and what they, they're, they're shaping a narrative to what they wanted to say. Even if they're shaping the narrative of what they wanted to say, there has to be a grain of truth somewhere. Every lie, every news story has a grain of truth, whether it sticks with it or not. But yet, as with all polls, we must take them with a grain of salt, for we know not who they poll. We don't know their sample size. We don't know the demographic. We don't know who they talk to. Because you come out to the Midwest, people who call themselves Christians, almost 85%. You go to the East Coast, it might be 40. You go to the West Coast, it might be 20. But on average, it's right around 70, 75%, not 64. So who did they who did they question? Who did they poll? Who did they sample with? I have never, ever, in all of these polls that all of these new cha news channels say they take, all of these papers, all of these research places, I have never once had a poll call my phone and ask me questions. Never one time have I ever had anybody call and ask me questions that, would, that were on a national poll like this. Never. So where, where do they get their sample size, their, their demographic from? Anyway, so last week, just last week, last Sunday morning, we talked about this people, excuse me, as this people. And we were talking about as this people have become stiff-necked, uh, God talking to Moses about it. And I am seeing more and more in this nation evidence of America becoming stiff-necked. Yet I also see glimmers of hope. I see some pockets of real change. In fact, just over in Grace Summit, Missouri, there is a thriving church with a dynamic pastor, a growing bus ministry. They're out soul winning two, three times a week and active members. Let me read it here. Let me say that again. They have active members, members who are there for three, four, five services a week. Members who care not just about the church building, but about the body of Christ. Now, there are other churches that are dead, but I know of at least one in Grace Summit, Missouri, that is growing, that is thriving, that is witnessing, that's getting the gospel out, that's out knocking on doors, that's running buses, and I mean actual bus-sized buses, a thriving ministry. I know of another one in Delaware. I know of another one in Texas. I know of another one in, wait a minute, I want to say Tennessee, but I'm not sure on that one. So, But there are pockets everywhere of the gospel getting out. But by and large, we have become a stiff-necked people in this nation. So I want to do an example of a revival or two and then get into a few things about those revivals. Because the revivals we're going to talk about are straight from the Word of God. Judges 10, 11. 
And the Lord said unto the children of Israel, Did not I deliver you from the Egyptians, from the Amorites, from the children of Ammon, and from the Philistines? The Zidonians also, and the Amalekites, and the Mananites did oppress you. Ye cried to me, and I delivered you out of their hand. Yet ye have forsaken me and served other gods, wherefore I will deliver you no more. Go cry unto the gods which ye have chosen. Let them deliver you in the time of your tribulation. And the children of Israel said unto the Lord, We have sinned. Do thou unto us whatsoever seemeth good unto thee. Deliver us only, we pray thee, this day. And they put away the strange gods from among them and served the Lord, and his soul was grieved for the ministry, or for the misery of Israel. The children of Israel were calling out to God in, that, in their persecution. And what did God say? He said, I'm not going to deliver you anymore. For all of those who say God loves us no matter what, I want you to pay attention here. For he is a jealous God. And when we leave him, he does care. When we stop worshiping, when we stop praising, when we stop caring for him, when we stop following his ways, he does care. He is God. He has standards. And uh, the standards do not change ever. From the moment he created the standard till today, that standard has never wavered, never changed. He is everlasting, he is pure, perfect, and just. He does not err, nor does he change, but yet we keep trying to fit him into our image of him rather than us trying to fit into his image. It's amazing how that works. The children of Israel cry out to him in their persecution, and he says, and I'm quoting, here's a quarter, call someone who cares. It's exactly what he said. He said, cry out to your little G gods, they're the ones you worship, let them deliver you. They can't. They're not gods at all. Now the children of Israel, they get down to business for their God, the one they had always forsaken them. Excuse me, the one they had always, he has now forsaken them and turned his back on them. And he told them no more. They get down to business. They says, all right, all right, we, we messed up. We brought in idols, we brought in false gods, now we're being persecuted, our fault. Do unto us whatever you want to do, whatever seems seemly, only deliver us, and we will worship you from this day on. God didn't heal them, God didn't deliver them, until they got to work, until they showed themselves desirous of serving him. <clears throat> it's actually quite fascinating when you think about it. For the Israelites... Now seeing the depths of their dilemma, turn from their sin, repent, call their sin as it is, sin, and they get busy serving God. They saw the error of their ways. They were remorseful. They got busy serving the God who delivered them, the God of their fathers. They put away the strange gods from among them and served the Lord once they started serving once they turned back to him, his soul was grieved for the misery of Israel. That's a revival. That's how it happens. I often tell people who come to me and want management, my employees, and I say, you know what? I've never given a, a promotion to anybody who wasn't already doing the job. 
God's never delivered people who weren't remorseful looking for deliverance. God meant business, and they finally realized they could not just do whatever they wanted, however they wanted. They realized God had a breaking point. He had standards, and they had to follow them. That's what they realized. When they had no other options, they were at rock bottom, and they repented. They got right with God, and they started serving the Lord. Now, I want you to also notice this. They served the Lord, not just in lip service. They did not pour flattery out to him. They didn't rationalize or make excuses. They got down to serving him, and then, then he delivered them. This whole set of verses is extremely fascinating to me, for it wholly contradicts those who say they can live as they please make up their own rules, not heed the scriptures, but preach a perverted message. God is a jealous God. He wants his people to worship him. He wants his people to praise him. He wants his people to give him the glory and the honor for the blessings in their life. And most important of all, he wants a personal relationship with his people. And when they walk away and they don't want him, it hurts him. It offends him. God gets hurt when we don't want him, believe it or not. He doesn't want passing acquaintances. He wants friends. He wants a relationship as father to son, as family, as God to adopted relative. That's what he wants. And when you walk away or you think you can live however you want in his house, no, he doesn't like it and it does hurt him. It does bother him. It is time we get back to the Christian of today getting a testimony again, getting zeal, getting fervor because our lack of testimony, our lack of zeal, our lack of fervor is what is driving people from the church. If it is not real to us, God's people, how do you expect it to be real to a lost world who doesn't have the spirit prick in their hearts? If we treat church as an inconvenience, how do you think they are going to treat it? If we treat God as an optional life, as a Maybe when I get time, how do you think they're going to treat him? And if, it, if it is not real to us, God's people, how do you expect it to be real to a lost and dying world who doesn't know what we know? If we cannot be bothered to go to church for more than an hour, and that's only if there's nothing else to do. How do you expect them to get up and go to a church that we, God's people, do not treat important? All right, so let's move on to example number two. What happens when the message of God is preached? The message of God given to his man is preached. This is what happens. Jonah 3.3. 3. So Jonah arose and went unto Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city 
of three days journey. That means it took three days to walk from this side of the city to that side of the city. And I'm guessing that's in a straight line, not wavering around. So three days. So it's a very big city. It took three days to walk across it. A normal man can walk, what, 10 to 12 miles in a day. If you're in crowds, let's go eight. So we're talking 24, 25 miles across is how big this city is. Very big city. Okay. So Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey. And he cried and said, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Jonah, and we all know, spit up by the whale on a beach. He decides, all right, God, I'm going to do what you ask. He walks to Nineveh, an exceeding great city, but also God says it's an exceeding wicked city. Jonah gets into the city. He walks in about a day's journey, so a third of the way into the, into the city, and he starts preaching, 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them, even to the least of them. So Jonah finally listened to God, went to Nineveh, preached the message that God had given him. And what happened? The people from the greatest to the least listened to the message and repented based off of God's word, God's wrath, God's judgment. They heard the message and they repented. Jonah 3.6, for word came unto the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, and he laid his robe from him, covered him with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. The king of a city 25 miles wide is sitting in ashes and sackcloth, repenting of his city's wickedness. But wait, there's more. <laughs> Jonah 3.7. And he caused it, the king, and he caused it to be proclaimed and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything, let them not feed nor drink water. Now this verse is fascinating. This verse right here, pay attention, ready? This is Jonah 3.8. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. Yea, let them turn everyone from his evil way and from the violence that is in their hands. Are you hearing this? I hope you are. They were so remorseful, they were so repentant that they even made the animals wear sackcloth. <laughs> it's fascinating. The king got so repentant, so remorseful, he made the animals, the beasts, the herds, the flocks repent of their evil ways. The uh, king covered himself in sackcloth, sat in ashes. It's utterly amazing that that took place in Nineveh. Again, it was, according to the Bible, an exceeding wicked city. But that exceeding wicked city heard the word of God. They heard the message of God from his messenger, and the people responded to the word. Fascinating. I want to say that again. They heard the word of God, the message from God, and they repented themselves of their wickedness 
This is what I mean. When they say the church must change or we lose the world. When they say the church must change or we lose the world, the world is already lost. It's already dying and going to hell. Why would we change our message from our God, who is the only hope they have? The world is already lost. Why would we try to change to bring them in and please them? We want them to have something they don't have, not to be as they are, but to be better, to be under the blood. We must preach God's word. We must preach God's message. Jonah did, and he turned an exceeding wicked city to God. And we want to sit here and play patty cake with him or footsies. Jonah went in and preached judgment and wrath. They heard, they repented, and they turned from their wicked ways. Don't tell me we can't preach sin, judgment, and wrath. The world is in darkness walking through this life. They are in the natural sin state just as we were when God found us. God's spirit knocked on our door. We responded to it. That is how we entered into the light. But if we don't stir the spirit and if we don't stir up the judgment and the wrath and let them know there is a penalty coming for the spirits to knock on the door for them to get remorseful and repent, how are they going to know? How can we expect them to respond when we are not pricking their hearts and allowing the Spirit to speak to them? If we do not preach sin, wrath, judgment, and hell, then what do they need to be saved from? If we do not pre preach God's wrath, if we do not preach penalty for sin, if we do not preach hell, judgment, then why must they be saved? If they never hear of the redeeming blood of Christ, who died to save them from an eternity in hell, then why do they need what we have? If they see us going to church when it's comfortable or convenient, if they see us only living a life when it's easy, why do they need what we have? If they don't hear the sin, the judgment, the wrath, what do they need to be saved from? If they don't hear of hell, what do they need to be saved to? If they don't hear of the love of Jesus and the heaven he is building for us, what do they need to be saved to? They're not understanding because they're not getting all the information. If they never hear of sin, wrath, judgment, or eternal death, the wages of sin, or the torment where the worm dieth not, then why, oh why do they need to be saved? What do they need to be saved from? In their minds, they are just as good as us. They have two cars. They go out and to the restaurants just like us. And while we know they are just as good as us, that's not a compliment. For we know that none are righteous save through the blood of Christ. They are just as good as us in our natural sin state, but they are not as good as him. And without him, they're going to hell, and we're not telling them. 
When we preach anything less than the message of God, we are doing them a vast disservice. And we will answer for what we did and what we did not say. God is not a good God is not a God of equity. He is a God of purity and holiness, and he cannot be less than he is. Ask Cain and Abel. Ask. He rejected Cain's offering. If he was a good God who just takes whatever you think he'll take, Cain and Abel would never have had a problem. But they did in the beginning because Abel met the, the, the standards of God. Cain did not, and Cain was uh, rejected. God cannot accept less than what he requires. And because it is his standard that he set, then he had to come to die, for he was the only one who could live up to that standard. We, in and of ourselves, could never have reached the standards that he set. We can never reach the standards that he set, for he is holy, just, and pure. We are not. He had to come and die for us because he was the only perfect sacrifice that could live purely and sinlessly on this earth to go to that cross and die. The one who has never sinned had to die for all of us sinners that we could have fellowship with him. He did what we couldn't do and he did it for us out of love. But if we live as the world, if we talk as the world, if we walk like the world, and he is perfectly fine with us living like the world, walking like the world, talking like the world, then why does the world need him? If he's okay with us living like the world, with us walking like the world, with us talking like the world, why did he have to die on the cross if we didn't have to be holy as he is holy? If he is God, and we as humans have caused him to reflect and change his standards. After all, we know better than, than he does, right? But if we have caused him to change his standards, and what we must do to meet his standards, then is he really God? If he changed his standards from the very beginning to meet our expectations, to what we think is necessary, if he changed his standards, he is not God. For God cannot change. The Bible says he is never changing. If he changed his standards for you and for me, then he is not God. I must then conclude that if he is God, then we, as humans, trying to make him fit our image, then we, as humans, are wrong. Think about that. If we caused him to change his standards because we thought, you know, we knew better, then he's not God. But if he is God, and he is, his standards haven't changed, 
than we and our thinking that he's okay with us living however we want, talking however we want, walking however we want, going wherever we want, doing whatever we want, then we are wrong, for his standards have not changed. All right, so we started with a few headlines that say that Christians are switching to atheism. Well, first, if you can leave, excuse me, if you can have the Christian experience and the spirit in your life, then you will never be able to leave Christianity. What most do not realize is that following Christ is not a hobby, nor is it a part-time thing. It is a full-time life choice. If you can walk away, if you can walk away from the church, if you can walk away from the Bible, if you can walk away from the Spirit, then you never had it in the first place. If you can walk away and have no pricking of the Spirit, then were you ever of the fold? That's the question to ask ourselves. Once you meet Jesus, there is no going back. And I mean truly meet Jesus on the road to Damascus experience. There is no going back. Now, not everybody's going to be called out like Paul was. Not everybody's going to see a bright light and fall down. No. But once you meet Jesus, your life will be changed for the better. And it will be changed deeply. Once you meet Jesus, if you've really met Jesus, you will never be able to fall away without your conscience and the spirit pricking you constantly. Will not happen. Just remember that not all that claim to be Christian are Christian. For Christ changes lives. 1970, it was uh, hip to be a Christian. 1970, everybody was a Christ follower, but not everybody was a Christian. Not everybody who claimed to be a Christian was. And some of those have built up some ministries that are not Christ-like, that are not Christ followers. Because when you come across and you meet Christ, he's going to change your heart and your mind. Most who have that, ex who have that true, genuine experience, the true, genuine experience, and meet Jesus have that life-changing experience, most who do may stumble. They may fall. They may backslide. But they will not be comfortable in that lifestyle, in that backsliding, in that sin. They will not be comfortable in it. For the Spirit of God indwells us at the very moment of salvation. That Spirit will not let you be comfortable. <clears throat> it won't. <clears throat> we no longer teach Christ as a lifetime decision. Instead, we treat it as if it is optional. If we happen to have time, it's optional. It's an inconvenience. Well, we're not going to church because, and again, I'm not talking to those who are shut in like Betty and a few others. I'm talking about able-bodied people who never go to church but claim to be a Christian. If you're not in his house, how do we know you're of his family? It's no wonder we are losing the world. We, as Christians, have lost our way. 
Even in our Bible colleges of today, we are teaching, if it feels good, do it. Don't rock the boat. Go along to get along theology. Well, I'm not going to argue with them or tell them they're wrong because that's going to turn them off and offend them. Well, I'd rather offend them than have them wrong and go to hell. I'm going to end this with Jesus' teaching on the subject of witness and testimony. I'm going to end this with what Jesus himself says about those that do not bear fruit. Matthew 7, 15. Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. You shall know them by their fruits. Do men, do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, Every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree, every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. Jesus himself, Jesus himself says, By their fruits ye shall know them. What fruit are you bringing forth? What is your testimony? What is your witness and testimony showing the world? Every good tree bringeth forth good fruit. Is therefore fruit coming from your witness and your testimony? Are you leading others to Christ? Are you leading others to the church, the body of Christ? Are you leading other peoples to God? Or are you, through your witness and your testimony, showing that they're just like you? What do they need him for? We have lost this nation because we are not bringing forth fruit through our witness and our testimony. Christian, when you look in the mirror and wonder why we are losing this nation, remember, the only Christ they will ever know is the one you are seeing in the mirror. The only Christ they will ever know is what you show them of him. Yeah, they need love. Yes, they need kindness. But they need to know there is wrath, there is judgment, there is hell to come, and they need to get right with their creator. You can't just preach love and kindness all the time. You must preach the consequences of sin. You must. Get out, preach Jesus, preach the gospel, preach the Bible, the message that was given to us. Because without Jesus, they're going to hell. We're not preaching enough of that.